here we go. This is the Skip Bayless Show, episode 55, in honor of one of the all-time greatest Dallas Cowboys, Lee Roy Jordan, old double nickels, as tough and classy as ever there was, one of my all-time favorite interviews. This is the un-undisputed. Everything I cannot share with you during the two-and-a-half-hour debate show that is undisputed. Today, I will go deeper than usual as I tell you why I had more in common with Ja Morant when I was his age than you probably think. Then today, I will answer a hot batch of your probing, provocative questions. But first up, as always, it is not to be skipped. The other day, I was skimming down a Ja Morant thread on Twitter. You know and I know what he has been up to or down to. And One tweet caught my eye because it was directed at me and at my debate partner, Shannon Sharp, and at other prominent sports commentators around this country. This tweeter said, and I quote, hey, we all did some stupid shit in our early 20s, so give job a little bit of a break. That tweet stopped me cold. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to be some holier-than-thou hypocrite on this matter. This tweeter is sure right about me. I did a bunch of, and I'm just going to use the word today, so pardon my language. I did a whole bunch of shit, and that's exactly what it was, shit. I did a whole bunch of stupid shit from age 14, I'll say, until 20-ish. Stupid shit that could have wrecked my life before it even got started. Hey, it could have ended my life. No, I did not rob. I did not steal. I didn't sell or do drugs. I didn't join a gang. I didn't gang bang. I didn't carry a gun or a knife. But I very easily could have gotten shot or stabbed or killed. My stupid shit, if you will, involved daring the devil. It involved thrill-seeking, risking my life for no real reason at all. So why did I engage in this shockingly, to me, horrifyingly stupid shit? Because from the very start, from grade school on up, I always made good grades. I'm talking about grade school, junior high, high school, college. I I actually made great grades. And I wanted my athletic friends to know all the way up that I wasn't just some goody two-shoes, teacher's pet brainiac. I did go to church every Sunday of my own volition, of, of my own choice. It's just because I, I can't help it. I, I like going to church. Still go to church now. But I needed back in junior high school and high school, even in early college years, I needed my high school teammates to know I did have some street in me. Because, as I'm about to point out, I I did have some street in me. But did I ever suffer 
an identity crisis. Was I a good boy or a bad boy? Was I a scholar or was I a jock? What, what exactly was I? Was I a choir boy or was I one bad MF? The truth was I was a little bit of all of the above. I don't think either one of my parents even finished high school. Neither of them ever, ever even thought about reading a book. My father was a hardcore drunk and my mother eventually fell victim to the bottle also. My father was a low-life loser from a little town up near Tulsa I grew up in Oklahoma City, but a little town up near Tulsa called Okmulgee, O-K-M-U-L-G-E-E, -E, Okmulgee. I spent a good deal of time in Okmulgee, as I'll get to in just a moment. My father always told me I would not amount to shit. My father was an abusive father. My father pounded into my brain that I needed to learn to work on cars instead of caring so much about driving cars fast. I'll get to that in a moment. But I needed to learn to work on cars so I could support myself when I got out of high school as a mechanic. Heard it over and over and over again all the way up until I went to high school. Maybe that's why I made such good grades. I'll show you. I wound up graduating second overall in my high school class of 681 students, largest high school in the state of Oklahoma, Northwest Classen. I barely missed being valedictorian because I made a B in driver's ed. Nobody ever got an A in driver's ed because they didn't want to create overconfidence behind the wheel. Justine Coyle, our valedictorian, did not take driver's ed. So she had a slight advantage and took advantage of that. But Justine went on to Harvard and became a, an anesthesiologist in Oklahoma City, if I'm not mistaken. God bless her. I wound up going to Vanderbilt on a full sports writing scholarship and graduating cum laude. Was I ever blessed? Was I ever lucky as I'm about to demonstrate? I, I didn't exactly grow up in the hood, but I was a product of a really weird melting pot of a white neighborhood in Oklahoma City, a, a district in which a few families had some money, but most families had very little. So it was mostly, I'd say, lower middle class to in some cases poor, intermingled weirdly with a little upper middle class. Most of my, it was called the Mayfair Grade School District, was made up of tiny little two-bedroom, one-bath homes. I was born into one of those. There were rough kids on streets around me. I mean, rough kids on the way to becoming what we called juvenile delinquents, punks, greasers, in those days, we even used the word hoods. They're hoods. I don't know if that came from the term neighborhood. I don't know. This is white stuff. But I can't tell you how many fights I got into with those kids on the way to becoming juvenile delinquents. I won most of those fights because I was big for my age. I was athletic for my age and I love to compete. I love to battle. I do have a bad temper, but I was always blessed with the ability to focus it, to channel it into being a strength instead of a weakness. 
I can't tell you how many times I fought my way home from grade school at Mayfair Grade School, Mayfair Elementary. A lot of tough, rough kids in my neighborhood. But on the edge of our district were two new housing developments. And we eventually did move into a three bedroom, two bath home. My father owned and also operated a little hole in the wall barbecue joint on the other side of town, the south side of Oklahoma City. It was called the Hickory House in a really rough neighborhood on the south side of Oklahoma City. Sometimes we had some money and sometimes we had no money. The biggest reason my father drank was because that restaurant business is a fickle hell of a killer. <laughs> it's funny, the other day I was talking to a former black NFL general manager I've known forever. And he just happened to mention on the phone, we were reminiscing about times we spent together. And he said, you know, we, as in some of the black executives, black players, we were a little worried about you at first because you were a rich kid from Vanderbilt. And I stopped him cold and I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from Vanderbilt. I graduated from Vanderbilt, but don't, don't get me mistaken here. I was not a rich kid, not anywhere near it. Trust me on that. There were times we had no money. But my dad did one good thing for me. He did force me to work at the Hickory House every summer day, every holiday without fail. He demanded that I worked. I hated it, but I love it now because he taught me the meaning and the value of hard work. It's the only good thing he ever did for me. I've told this story before, but it's more relevant now. I wanted a rifle when I was maybe eight or nine years old. I'm not talking about a toy rifle. I'm not talking about a squirt gun rifle. I'm talking about a real rifle with real bullets, a 22 caliber rifle. So I worked for my money. I saved up my money. And my parents didn't mind at all because I didn't really have any rules. They were a wreck, so was our home life. But they allowed me to buy a rifle. It was much easier in those days than it is now. But I bought a 22 caliber rifle and they were like, no big deal, whatever. I didn't really care to hunt with the rifle, but I did love taking target practice with that rifle. And could I ever knock over my dad's beer cans, empty beer cans, sitting up on boxes from 30 or 40 yards away? I got pretty good with that 22 rifle. So the Hickory House, in a very rough neighborhood, got robbed numerous times. And one night, in the middle of the night, some thieves busted a big hole in the roof of the Hickory House, improbably, and they came down through that hole and they tried to break open the safe unsuccessfully. My father feared they would come back that next night and try to finish the job that was interrupted, maybe by a random cop car checking or whatever. We had the police would make the rounds at night and stop and peer in with their flashlights. Maybe they got disrupted. I don't know. So that next night, after closing time, my father and I spent the night at the Hickory House. Again, I was the oldest in the family. I had no big brother figure. I really didn't have much of a father, but he wanted me to stay with him along with my 22 caliber rifle in my lap. And he wanted me to sit up all night and watch that hole up in the roof of the Hickory House. And he told me to shoot anybody who came down through that hole. Then of course, he fell asleep drunk as usual. I sat at age 14, staring up 
into the blackness waiting for a human form to materialize. I don't know for sure what I would have done if one did, but I do believe to this day I would have shot to kill. This was our livelihood. This put food on our table. And thank God, no human form materialized up in that black space up there, that hole in the roof. Legally, I'm not sure what would have happened to me if I had shot and killed someone, though, with a 22 caliber, and I knew this at the time at age 14. Caliber is so small, the bullets are so small. I did have 22 longs as opposed to shorts, but you'd have to hit somebody right in the forehead or right in the heart to actually kill them. But I also don't know to this day how difficult that would have been on me psychologically if in fact I had shot and killed a potential thief. But the point is I grew up around guns. I spoke previously about my father growing up in Okmulgee. Every summer I would spend a week in Okmulgee with his mother, whose name was Fanny Davis. My grandmother, Fanny, was the toughest woman I ever knew. She was sort of a, a man woman. She had survived the Great Depression by selling fruit out on the street. She had raised three kids without a father. My father was her youngest. She didn't have any money. She lived in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom home about five doors down from Okmulgee High School. Yet somehow, I, I, she was such a wheeler-dealer, such a hustler, she had somehow acquired the rights to, to what was a tenement of an apartment house, two stories that mostly drew transients. I think the rooms were like 50 cents a day, oil field roughnecks from in and around the Tulsa area, had one community bathroom per floor, in each of the little one-room apartments had a single naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling to light it with a little silver chain you could pull for on and off. My grandmother Fanny loved me the best of the grandkids, or so it seemed to me, and she always took me with her in the mornings to what she called collect, as in rent. Every once in a while, some smelly scoundrel and dirty undershirt would be standing in his door and refuse rent to her and say he just didn't have the money right now. So out we would march. It's happened, I don't know, six or eight times when I was with her. Out we would march to her Buick Skylark, her little Buick Skylark. She'd pop open the trunk, she'd reach in and get her pistol and back down the apartment hall, we would march, knock on the same door, and she wouldn't brandish the pistol, but she would just simply hold it at her side and again, ask for her rent money. And each time I witnessed this happening, I was like seven or eight, she would get her rent money. Also during this period, I had a bow and many arrows, lethal arrows. I got hooked on learning to shoot the bow with the arrows. I had a little target that I got for Christmas, a hay stuffed target in the backyard, and I got pretty deadly with the bow and the arrow. So you want to know how I started to impress my friends, my athletic friends at age 10, 11, and 12? Some summer nights we'd go out in the backyard at night I would shoot my bow and arrow straight up into the stars as hard as I could shoot it. it. It seemed like it would travel like a mile. It was unbelievably powerful fiberglass bow. And we would stand there, usually just one friend at a time. I had a friend named John Corey who did this with me several times. 
we would stand there giggling at each other, waiting for the arrow to descend from the sky and stick in the ground very near to us. We were actually playing bow and arrow roulette for no apparent reason except to impress each other about how fearless we were. We were literally daring the devil. How we loved telling these stories to our other athletic friends, how brave we were, waiting to hear that arrow stick in the ground nearby. What if just one time said arrow had come straight down through the skull of my friend John Corey or through my own skull? This was insanity. This was incredibly stupid shit that I just seemed to have in my blood. So in eighth grade at what was called Taft Junior High School, it was just seventh and eighth grade, I was chosen athlete of the year. We had about 1,500 kids in seventh and eighth grade, so I was pretty proud of that honor. But having won that, this required me to ask my mother for more and more transportation, played AAU basketball, went to clinics, went to camps. My mother got sick and tired of it because she had too many of her own problems. So she told my father upon my birthday in eighth grade, December the 4th, that she wanted him to go buy me a motorcycle so she didn't have to take me anywhere else. A Honda 90. I had worked hard the summer before. I'd saved some money, so my father and I went together and matched for the Honda 90. It wasn't that expensive at the time. My father despised the idea. He predicted openly to my mother I would die on my Honda. My mother said, no, he's too smart for that. But understand, I had no rules, no curfew, complete mobility at age 14. So right away on weekends, daredevil me, I started hanging out with those juvenile delinquents, those greasers, some called them punks or hoods, because they had motorcycles and now so did I. I didn't belong in their culture but they let me in because I had a motorcycle and I liked to race it. And I started racing all of their motorcycles. We just called them cycles. Their Honda 90s, their Yamaha 80s. I, I drove my motorcycle all over Oklahoma City. I raced it all over Oklahoma City. And believe it or not, I never even had a single close call. We didn't even have a helmet law at that point. So I rode it without a helmet. I was a survivor. Thank you, God. I still think the reason that I did go to church was the reason I did survive all that I'm about to tell you. I, I even remember a spring day my freshman year of high school. I was in a different neighborhood. I was racing three or four of these greasers up and down the street. We're just like blatantly racing, smashing speed limits. They, they wouldn't go more than maybe 50 max, 50 miles an hour. But up and down we raced until finally this woman came storming out of her house, marched out in the middle of the street, stopped me cold. These other guys, they, they didn't care. Who the hell are you? And I immediately recognized the woman as a teacher at Northwest Glasson High School that I attended. She taught some senior English class. I just knew who she was, but she definitely didn't know who I was. She read us the riot act, said we'll never amount to anything in our lives. She asked, don't you guys have some homework you need to be doing instead of racing these motorbikes? Well, at that point, I had three quarters of grades at Northwest Classroom High School, five classes a day. Was it five or six? Maybe it was six classes a day. I had made 
nothing but A's. And I told her to her face, I said, you can't judge a book by a cover because I'm in ninth grade and I've made straight A's. And she scoffed at me, she laughed at me and she said, yeah, and I'm the tooth fairy. Next day I went to school and went in and introduced myself to her before school started and told her if she wanted to go check my record, she could because you can see I had an identity crisis. I was living in both worlds. My stakes got a lot more dangerous when I got actually my second car in high school, which I helped pay for. It was a 1967 Chevy Camaro SS350. It would go. It was 325 horses, four-speed stick shift with what's, what was called pause attraction, pause attract. I street raced it like I was Ricky Bobby. I often hit 100 miles an hour racing in neighborhoods, in neighborhoods. I was a speed freak. I thrust myself into one high risk situation after another. I would blow the doors off uh, Camaro Z28s, which were hot at the time, or Mustang Mach 1s, which were hot at the time. I lost one race in high school out on May Avenue, the busiest street that went through our district. Excuse me, district. The only race I lost was it to a Dodge Challenger with a 440 Magnum. It just blew me away, literally and figuratively. So I did a whole lot of stupid shit behind the wheel of my Camaro and I live to tell. But I think back now, one wrong split second decision and I would have killed myself, two or three of my friends and God only knows how many other innocent people. I never even got a speeding ticket in high school. I don't know how not. I was so very lucky but now for the stupidest shit I ever did. Stupid shit that I'm now so ashamed of, so ashamed to admit about publicly, so ashamed to bear my soul about, that I even hesitate as I speak to do so. But for the sake of full disclosure, in the context of John ja Morant, I will. Several of my athletic friends and I started engaging in this daredevil behavior when we were sophomores in high school. I don't know who came up with it to start. It was not I. But many times, many times over the next four years, I went along with it. I participated wholeheartedly in it because I wanted to show my athletic friends that I did have some badass in me. I had guts. I was not afraid. I was an effing man, not some straight A church going goody two shoes. We called this daredeviling getting chase. We called it getting chase. We did this with snowballs in winter and water balloons in summer. When it snowed, a group of us, maybe four or five at a time, would form snowballs in our gloved hands, pack them until they were solid. The longer you held on to them with a gloved hand, the warmth turned it to more ice. So, so basically we had ice balls in our hand. And we would pop out from between houses and just drill a passing car with the snowballs or the water balloons. But in this case, the snowballs, they were the worst. And then we would dare the occupants of the car to chase us. We would taunt them, we would gloat, we would scream at them chases through the neighborhood. So what happens when you hit cars with ice balls? Dents happen, broken windshields happen, anger happens. I, I cannot imagine now if somebody drilled my car or my wife's car 
with ice balls and dented my car or my wife's car, I would be furious. I would be out of my mind. I would be unhinged. The truth was nothing about this was manly. It was nothing but cowardly. I lettered in baseball as a sophomore at Northwest class, and it was a big deal because not many did. I was a catcher, so I loved showing off my rifle arm with those ice balls. Chases did ensue through the neighborhood. This was often at night that we did this. We had no idea who was chasing us. Th these are random cars we would pick on, but we just loved seeing those brake lights flash on. We loved hearing the doors fly open. We'd taunt, we'd dare, and they would chase. We usually split as they chased us. We'd all go in different directions, and it was pretty easy to elude them. We pretty much knew where we were heading. They didn't, but we would just randomly take off leaping over chain link fences into dark backyards, hoping we didn't pick the wrong house with the wrong bad dog in the backyard. That happened to me several times, but I was able to outrun said dark and vault the other side of the chain link fence. But one night I slammed my gloved hand down so hard on a fence that the prongs on the top, the, the right prong, went right up through my hand, right up between my thumb and my forefinger into my flesh. But not until we had all, all four or five of us had reconvened back at one of our friend's houses and we were telling our war stories, did I realize that my gloved hand was wet with my blood. I still have the scar. I'm looking at it right now. I was so proud of it in those days. It, it was like I'd gotten my first tattoo. I finally had my first war wound. I got chase. I lived to tell. In the summer, we got chased with water balloons. One Sunday afternoon, I fired a water balloon at a car driven by an elderly man with his wife. The splatter of the water balloon on his driver's side window scared him so much that he veered off the road and hit a stop sign. Of course, we, we ran. There's no way he was going to chase us, but we ran because we knew this was really wrong. To this day, I hope that that man and his wife were okay. Their car was not. But at that point in time, in my group of friends, I became a made man because I had caused a wreck. How I valued the acceptance of my athletic friends, how I valued validation. I had caused a wreck and I was a genuine badass. This was some really, really low, stupid shit. I'm so ashamed and I am so, so lucky. Not once did any of our victims catch me or shoot me or stab me, though it could have happened at any moment, any day, any night. My teammates occasionally got cornered by a chaser and they had to fight their way out of that corner, fight their way free. Oh, the stories they told when we reconvened. Meanwhile, I kept getting 4.0 straight A's on my report card. My mother or father, one of your parents had to sign them and you had to take them back into school. So I know my mother signed them and saw them but she never said a word to me about any of my grades. She, she had her own problems, 
my father had run off with her best friend who lived right down the block from us. This is when I was a sophomore in high school. So my grades were irrelevant to my mother. So what happened near the end of my senior year? Out of the blue, in a shock to me, I got a call from Nashville, Tennessee. Actually, my mother took the call first and wrote me a note, said call back area code 615, whatever the number was. I immediately knew it was Vanderbilt and I thought, my God, I have won that scholarship and I had. I called back and was told I'd won the Grantland Rice Scholarship at Vanderbilt University room, board, tuition for four years. No way could my mother have afforded to send me to Vanderbilt. This was a full ride. But did that cure me of getting chase when I came back home from Vanderbilt for Christmas holidays or spring break? Nope, more than ever, I wanted to show, I wanted to show my homeboys that I wasn't now some hoity-toity, upper-crusty, too-good-for-Oklahoma-City Vanderbilt Commodore. No, I would still literally run the old neighborhood streets with them, with the guys I grew up with. Now, some of those guys had gone on to the University of Oklahoma, but I wanted to show all of them I'm not too good for you. You wanna know the truth? The truth is now that I look back, I, I, I was too good for them in, in a good way, in the most positive way. But I, I just, I couldn't yet see it or accept it. At the very least, I was too good to be getting chased with them anymore. But think about this. God has been so good. He had been so good because I had escaped this hellish home life. Now, I, I wasn't set to make $39 million in my first three years out of college the way Jaw has. I definitely wasn't set over my first nine years of professional life to make 239 million, the way Ja is now set to make it, if he so chooses. But relative to my life, I had just as much to lose as Ja has to lose. Trust me on this. I, I had a career at my fingertips that I never could have dreamed of. Growing up, cleaning tables at the Hickory House cleaning tables, sweeping up around the trash cans, doing the grunt work at the Hickory House. I never could have dreamed what I had right before my very eyes. Last time I ever got Chase came the day after Christmas, my sophomore year at Vanderbilt. I was back home in Oklahoma City in all my glory, back with my homeboys. It had snowed hard. And we were at one friend's house that backed up to Lake Hefner, which is on the north side of Oklahoma City. So we trudged out into the snow, over his fence, down near the lake road, circled the lake, standing in three-foot snow drifts, not much traffic, making snowballs, ready to get chase. Finally, around the bend came a lonesome car. We bombarded it with snowballs, ice balls. Boom, boom, boom. I still had an arm. But this lonesome car did not swerve, didn't even really hit the brake lights didn't even slow down. We yelled, we screamed at it, and then we just held our ground, made new snowballs, waited for the next car. Little did we know that that car, full of four badasses, 
had simply circled the lake and come back around the bend. We did not know it was the same car. So as we let fly once again with our snowballs, ice balls, that car made a hard right off the road right at us and all four guys came flying out of said car on the dead run. We were sitting ducks or maybe at this point penguins stuck in the snow. Suddenly we had to turn and somehow churn back through the snow toward my friend's chain link fence in his backyard. It was an uphill climb. I was the first to get to the fence. I successfully vaulted it because my adrenaline was flowing. But as I turned to look back at the two friends who were trailing me, I saw my craziest homeboy get caught from behind. I saw him turn and cold cock his pursuer. Just flat out decked him. One big shot right to the jaw. And at that instant, as I saw the pursuer's blood fly out of his mouth, I thought, this is insane. I will never ever do this again. I I'm the sophomore Grantland Rice Scholar at Vanderbilt and here I stand in the snow watching one of my best friends cold cock a pursuer for no good reason. We usually fled through the neighborhood, but because we were so busted, we just ran straight inside my friend's house. We, we had no choice unless we wanted to stand and fight all four of them. And we weren't of that mind, at least I wasn't. Those four guys started banging on the front door, then they banged on the windows as we pretty much cowered inside. And his parents kept asking us, what the hell is going on? What are you guys getting into out there? Later, the friend who decked the one guy said that he thinks they were just big, bad high school kids, look like high school football players. But we were so lucky, they didn't have guns, they didn't have knives. Maybe today they would. That night they didn't. They just had fists, but were they ever after us? How lucky are we they didn't try to just force down the door, knock out the windows, or in, in the end, just merely call the police. 15 long minutes later, they finally went back to their car and they left. So I spent the next hour celebrating with my friends, especially celebrating my friend's knockout punch. But I just knew that was it for me. Somehow the celebrating, the gloating, rang hollow for the first time ever. One of those friends went on to become a bookmaker in Oklahoma City. He moved in and out of the Oklahoma City underworld. He was about that life. Another of my friends somehow became a middle school gym teacher but soon got fired for sexual harassment, or maybe worse. Another friend actually went on to become a very successful lawyer in Oklahoma City, member of Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club. And yet another, a very good high school football player, I just completely lost touch with after that night. I don't know what happened, he decided not even to go to college to even try to play football. I heard he worked in the oil fields for a while. And I heard he died young. 
that I lost complete touch. I do remain close to one childhood friend. His name is Craig Humphreys. He's now a talk radio legend in Oklahoma City. They call him the Hump Man. Not once did Craig Humphreys ever get chase with us. That was some mindless, pointless, thrill-seeking, stupid shit. It could have had a thousand tragic endings. I could have been one of those stories you read about, about that stupid kid who got himself killed for no reason at all. So yes, to that tweeter that I stumbled across on Twitter the other day, yes, many, if not most of us, do some stupid shit in our late teens, early 20s. Maybe someday soon, Ja Morant will have a eureka moment like I had that night. I look back and watch my friend Cole Caucus pursue her. I don't know, maybe Ja had that moment, that eureka moment on IG Live the other night. Maybe, maybe someday soon, I don't know, maybe, maybe it'll take three, four, five years, but maybe Jal wake up some morning and think, what was I thinking? Because he's not thinking. Maybe he will wake up and realize it's time to grow up and quit trying to show guys that he cares too much about that money really hasn't changed him at all, that he's not too good for them or whatever their equivalent is of getting chase. I realized that one fateful night that it was time to leave them behind before I got left behind with them. Trust me, Ja, <laughs> I was so lucky so many times. I still have some south side of Oklahoma City in me. I still have some Oak Mulgee in me. I still have some gun-toting Grandma Fanny in me. Trust me, I do. But here I sit at this Fox lot in Los Angeles doing the Skip Bayless show, counting my blessings. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Bayless. Just go to Indeed.com slash Bayless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Bayless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's get to your question, shall we? This is Max from Tustin, California. What is your all-time favorite book? Fair enough. As I mentioned, I was not at all encouraged to read as a child, but I read voraciously, probably to escape my hellish home life. My favorite book as a kid Treasure Island, Robert Louis Stevenson. Oh, did I ever want to be young Jim Hawkins battling with Long John Silver and those pirates. That was my ultimate fantasy. I wanted to fight the pirates and win, as Jim did. 
later on, I came to, to like Hemingway and to love Faulkner. Light in August by Faulkner, for, for me, was his masterwork. It was the one that first made me sit back and just smack my forehead and say, how did he create this? Then I became obsessed with John Irving after I read his The World According to Garp. Then I became even more obsessed with Tom Wolfe after I read Bonfire of the Vanities, which hinges on one wrong turn taken by Sherman McCoy that wrecked his life. See everything I just talked about. By the way, the movie that they made off one of the all-time greatest books I ever read, Bonfire of the Vanities, was an abomination starring Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis. But how I love that book. Lately, I have fallen in love with and in awe of Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian, is a chilling masterpiece. I dare somebody someday to make a movie of Blood Meridian. In the biggest picture, everything that Cormac McCarthy writes, creates, is just so dark. Then again, No Country for Old Men did work as a movie thanks to the Coen brothers. Which brings me to my all-time favorite, and we're talking books, my all-time favorite book by the greatest wordsmith who ever wrote a novel. I'm talking about The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Never been anything like it. First read it in college. I could read it again tonight and tomorrow night and the next night. And once again, it would depress me as a writer because I would smack myself in the forehead and say, how did he create this? Understand that the single greatest writer I ever read, not novelist, but writer, was William Shakespeare. He's the one who's just simply not human. I would read Shakespeare's plays at Vanderbilt, and I would say it's impossible that a human being could create this dialogue, these plot lines, so consistently. But they were plays, not books. When it comes to book writing, there's no match for the great Gatsby. And I did think the movie versions did the book some justice. There was the Robert Redford Great Gatsby in 1974, and you may know the later one, 2013, starring Leo DiCaprio. The Great Gatsby, greatest ever. It's the goat book. Brian from Ohio asks, do you wear Jordans when you run? I'm assuming Brian, you're talking about running distance, which I still do, did it this morning, mostly on the treadmill. I do not wear Jordans when I run. For me, Jordans have always been much more for show than for performance, especially the ones, the originals. I, I still have no idea how Michael Jeffrey Jordan actually played basketball in the ones. But, you know, Mike, he could have dominated barefooted. I've tried, uh, tried playing basketball in the ones and the twos and all, I, all the way up the 11s. I, I've tried them all. Never loved any version of the Jordans to play basketball in. Do I ever love wearing them, especially with suits? But when it comes to running distance, I'm only concerned with my health, with staying healthy through trial and error. As weird as it might seem, I found that 
the running shoe that best protects me from injury, that best fit my feet like gloves, are made by Reebok. I don't know why, it's just Reebok, and it's an older line called Float Ride. I have stockpiled four more brand new pair of Float Ride Reeboks because they're getting harder and harder to find. And this is even weirder, but when I do play basketball, I still play in an old line of Fila's that I stumbled upon maybe 10 years ago, Fila's. I, I, again, when it comes to actually running, jumping, playing basketball, running distance, I'm only concerned with staying healthy. These Fila's, and I've stockpiled three brand new pair of them because they're way out of ability to order. But they're like wearing lightweight tanks on my feet. They provide this astonishing protective support from my ankles and my arches while still feeling fast on my feet. I've never experienced anything like them. So forgive me, Michael. I'm, I'm going to run and play in what work for me, style be damned. I'm going to walk around in what sends the coolest message while also making me feel the most confident. I can't lose in these shoes. It's Jordan's forever. This is Anton from Columbus, Ohio, who asked, do you, do you ever play pickup basketball? Not anymore. No way, Anton, can I risk actually randomly getting into pickup basketball games with people I don't know who probably do know me and who might on occasion want to show me just what they got for me. Fastest gun in the West stuff. That's the recipe for me for surgical disaster. Especially when you run up against that guy and you know who that guy is who really has no idea what he's doing on the basketball court, plays completely dangerously out of control, who submarines you on fast breaks, and who comes crashing into your knees when he crashes the boards. Now I play only one-on-one -on -one basketball with somebody I know and completely trust to play very hard, but to play very smart to play fiercely, but safely. And I, I do win most of the one-on-one -on -one games I play, not on skill, but on stamina. If you're gonna compete with me in one-on-one, -on -one, you better be able to run all day because I will run you in the ground. Maybe it's a holdover from my days getting chase. Alex from Tampa asked, besides the Cowboys, Spurs, and Oklahoma, what are the other teams you root for? Hmm. Dear to my heart, my first two loves as a little kid growing up in Oklahoma City were, number one, University of Oklahoma football, as Alex points out, and number two, which he does not point out, the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team of the 1960s, probably way before your time. Those Cardinal teams of the 60s for a little kid were something. Featuring my all-time favorite St. Louis Cardinal, Bob Gibson, baddest man who ever threw a baseball along with Lou Brock and Kurt Flood and Bill White and Julian Javier and a man we recently lost, a man you probably do know of, Tim McCarver, 
who played catcher, as did I. I own one piece of signed memorabilia, only one piece, and it's thanks to my man Nelly from the Lou, as in St. Louis. Nelly obviously is a Lou legend. He and the St. Lunatics. Before Bob Gibson passed, Nelly got Gibby to sign a baseball for me. My most prized possession of memorabilia, my only signed piece. I don't root for the Cardinals as much as I used to. I still follow them, but truth be told, because I covered the Los Angeles Dodgers out here in LA for the LA Times through the 70s, the Dodgers own a little piece of my heart. Now I live in Los Angeles and I still believe that Dodger Stadium is the greatest baseball venue in this great country that we live in. Even beyond Fenway and beyond Wrigley, it's Dodger Stadium for me. But please do not underestimate how much I still root for the aforementioned Vanderbilt Commodores. When I first graduated from Vandy, I tried to convince myself, hey, silly for Vanderbilt to even have teams representing Vanderbilt, trying to win bragging rights for a school that I still believe with all my heart and soul is the greatest school in this country, the greatest college experience. It's not even close, it's Vanderbilt. I've steered so many kids in the direction of Vanderbilt. Now it's almost impossible to get in. I think it's 7% of, of the kids who try to get in do get in. I used to think, so, so why do we need a bunch of kids come in to represent us as athletes who might not choose Vanderbilt if not for sports? Well, here's why. We do play in the SEC, the Southeastern Conference. Our academic admission standards for athletes are much, much tougher than any other school with which we compete. So does it ever do my heart good when we win SEC football games? We won some last year or basketball games or national championships in baseball. And I'm now so proud of my Vanderbilt basketball team as it won eight of its last nine regular season SEC games. Jerry Stackhouse, bless him, can flat out coach basketball. Anchor down. Orrin from Boston asked, do you pick out your suits the night before Undisputed? I do not, Oren. My wardrobe artist, Autumn, does that for me. She is the greatest. Each Monday, when I arrive at my dressing room around 4 a.m. out here, LA time, five suits are hanging on a rolling rack ready for action for the week. Sometimes, every once in a while, I do make a suggestion to Autumn for a special occasion, but mostly, I count on Autumn in winter and spring and summer and autumn. Bless you, Autumn, and thank you. Sean from Atlanta asked, if you ever write or wrote, if you ever wrote an autobiography, who would it be dedicated to? I will write an autobiography, but not until I am completely out of the TV business. Not until I am working only for myself. Only then can I unleash with complete and utter honesty, and I will do just that. 
my three cowboy books that I wrote were dedicated to my mother and to my girlfriends at the time. One to Peggy, one to Amy. I've had four previous long-term relationships, including one to my first wife, Liz, who also went to Vanderbilt. I remain close to all of the above because they became the sisters I always wanted my real sister to be, and it just never worked. Our home was just too broken. But when it comes to my autobiography, my life's work, my Gatsby, it will be dedicated to my Ernestine, who is my life. No one, no one has ever stood by and with me like my Ernestine. Nobody in my life have I ever trusted with my life the way I trust my Ernestine. I am not the greatest husband. I make life hard. But she is the greatest wife. She makes my life so much easier. I love you, Ernestine. That is it for episode 55. Thank you for listening and or watching. Thanks to Jonathan Berger and his all-pro team for making this show go. Thanks to Tyler Korn for producing. Please remember, Undisputed, every weekday, 9.30 to noon Eastern, The Skip Bayless Show, every week.